today you might be surprised to find that you came on the day that we're going to be talking about wives submitting to their husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you're the man of that family, you probably came here saying, finally, a theology I can embrace, a church that teaches what I want to hear. Ladies, you probably, on the other hand, are thinking to yourselves, you should have stayed in bed today. But I'm glad that you came out anyway. And it's over the last several weeks, as we've been looking at some of the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit or being led by or thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, we noted that in general terms, according to Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5, that the first thing that results from that filling or leading of the Holy Spirit is that our relationship with God becomes right. Specifically, what Paul tells us is that our relationship with God, having become right, will manifest itself in verse 19, he says, in the form of believers gathering together and making noise together, singing and praising God. We declare his greatness, we declare his faithfulness, we declare his wonder, and we accompany that with instruments. That's what the Bible teaches us. So we sing loudly, we sing with all of our hearts, declaring the greatness of God, giving him the very best that we have to offer. And then in verse 20, as we were in chapter 5, we found that our hearts became so filled with thanksgiving and that we are thankful for our position in Christ. We are thankful for the privilege that we have of being made right before God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are thankful for that and we are thankful for our position in him. In fact, we are also thankful for his sovereignty and we recognize that according to the promise of Romans chapter 8, that God will providentially work all things, whether they are good things or bad things, to our ultimate benefit. Isn't that what we learned? We found that He will take all things, even the most crummy of circumstances, and He will work them to our ultimate good. So as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, then, our relationship with God is characterized by this continuous praise and this continuous thanksgiving, and our relationship with Him is right. That's what it means. Our relationship with Him is right, and we have correct attitudes toward Him. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, not only does our relationship toward God become right, but also we found that our relationships with one another become right as well. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we began talking about the fact that being filled with the Holy Spirit would enable us to have this ability to submit ourselves to other people in a way that we otherwise would not be able to. And the truth of the matter is, and we discussed this last week, that if we are unable to embrace the truth of Philippians chapter 2, which tells us in verse 3 that we are to humble ourselves and to see others as being higher than ourselves or better than ourselves, that we will have a very, very difficult time following the command to submit to them. It would be impossible for us to do that, wouldn't it? verb is hypotasso, and it means that we line ourselves up under something, or we line ourselves up under someone. So the message from Paul is very clear. As believers, as you are thrust forward under the power of the Holy Spirit, not only will it result in the humility and in right relationship with God, but it will also cause you to have right relationships with other people by seeing themselves as better than you, by seeing yourselves as lowlier than others and causing you to subject yourselves to or to make yourself subordinate to others. The problem is that is such an offense to our human nature, isn't it? As you think about that, isn't that just such an offense to your human nature? Because in my human nature, I want to say, wait a minute, I have a better education than that guy. I have a better job than that guy. 
I live in a nicer house. I drive a nicer car. I'm much smarter than he is, so very clearly he is lower than I am. And I think that's the way it works in our human nature. That's the way it works in our society. I am the one that's elevated because I have all of these nice things. Yet, friends, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, if we are thrust forward by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work in us will humble us and he will empower us to subject ourselves even to people who, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, are less advanced than we are. It's interesting to me that is that humility... That lowly view of oneself allows us to subordinate ourselves to others. Our relationships with them are enriched. So beginning in verse 22 then, this morning, Paul is going to tell us what it looks like for us to have right relationships with other people. And that's where we're going to be now as we move forward for the next several weeks. He's going to help us to understand what it means to humbly subject ourselves to other people in the body of Christ. And so as we move forward, there's one thing that I want you to keep in mind. And that is the fact that without understanding and being able to properly embrace verse 21, you are never going to get from verse 22 forward all the way into chapter 6. And this is what it says in verse 21 submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to say that again. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then from this verse, Paul jumps right into verse 22 where he says, Wives, say it with me, men. You've been waiting for this for a long time, right? (laughs) Wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord. So just by way of introduction to this verse, I want you to notice that the word submit there should be in italics. And what that means is that it does not actually appear in verse 22, and all the women are happy to hear that, right? You're saying, wait a minute, this command submit does not actually belong in verse 22. It's not in the original language. But I want you to know, ladies, don't get too excited because it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to appear there because I want to read this again, and I want us to leave out the word submit as it appears, uh, or it does not appear in verse 22, and I want you to see what I mean here. This is what Paul says in verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husband's as to the Lord. You see, doesn't need to be there, does it? Because it means the same thing. Submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So very clearly, friends, the command is for the wife to line herself up under the husband. She is to hupotasso. We spoke about that last week. It means that she is to subject herself. She is to subordinate herself to him. And that's what Paul has in mind. That's what he's after. And it seems that in our modern and more enlightened society, as we've gotten smart and our society has evolved and we feel like we've gotten all this wisdom and enlightenment, this concept, I believe, is particularly archaic and outdated as far as people are concerned. Someone might say, well, Scott, that was just a cultural thing. Women were expected to subject themselves to their husband 2,000 years ago, but we don't do that anymore. We don't have the need to do that anymore. You see, that instruction was just for that particular time in history. I'm always reminded of the country preacher who one day was preaching on this verse in Ephesians 5:22 and he was talking about the wife's submissive posture to her husband and as he's preaching just passionately preaching he's standing up there just preaching his heart out and at one point in the sermon for whatever reason he said now I want all of you men who are constantly henpecked by your wives to stand up and shout amen and uh, so as one old deacon one old deacon began to stand up. His wife, who was sitting next to him, quickly grabbed him by the arm and said, you are not impact. You sit down and shut up. 
And so he turned to her, and of course he said, yes, dear, you're right. And he took his seat. And so the preacher noticed it, and he said, brother, does your wife rule over you? And the deacon said, nope. He said, we always compromise. I always admit I'm wrong, and she always agrees. And that's how it works in, my, in our family, he says. So, but I want you to know, friends, that the instruction here is just as real and applicable today as it was all those 2,000 years ago when it was written. You see, the wife's struggle to submit, the wife's struggle to line up under her husband is not isolated to only our time and place in history. And is not isolated only to that time and place in history. Those people who struggle with it, struggle with it because it is simply a product of the sinful nature. That's what it is. In fact, if we would go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the first three chapters of the Bible, of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, what you're going to see is what exactly what I'm talking about here. You'll remember that the woman was deceived by the serpent. You remember the story. She was deceived by the serpent, and she sinned by disobeying God and eating the fruit that God said don't eat. Now, at that time, when she did that, God then declared a curse on woman. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, God told Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Is that true, ladies? It's true. Amen. That's right. That curse is still effective today. Now listen, you shall desire, your desire rather, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, I want to help you understand this concept of your desire shall be for your husband because some of you look at your husband and say, I don't want the guy at all. He's kind of a bum. I I have no desire for him. But that's not what he's talking about here. When it says you will desire, your desire will be for your husband, this word actually comes from an Arabic root, which means to seek to control. Stay with me here. You see? To seek to control. So we would do really well to read this verse as saying, you will seek control over your husband and he will rule over you. You see? You see, when Eve sinned in the garden, unfortunately, she did that apart from Adam's leadership. She did that apart from Adam's protection. She did that apart from him. She did not consult him. She did not submit herself to him as she should have. She did not seek his covering. She did it all on her own. And as a result, God says that going forward, her desire will be to take charge. Her desire will be to take charge. She will desire to be in control. She will desire to rule. And yet, despite that desire, her husband will rule over her. Ladies, that's a curse, isn't it? That is a curse. And I think it's obvious in our society today, isn't it? I think you can see it very plainly. Maybe sometimes a woman will have a silent desire to rule the man that she holds silently in her heart and it just burns in her heart because in some cultures it's inappropriate for her to speak it aloud. And so she internalizes it and she holds on to it. Or maybe she thinks to herself, boy, what a yutz. This guy is completely out of his mind. He doesn't have a clue. And she holds on to it and she internalizes it. And though she may not vocalize it, her desire in her heart is to rule and to take control because after all, he doesn't know what he's doing. And then there are those who are like many in our society, have absolutely no filter, and they exercise absolutely no self-control and no restraint at all, and they loudly and proudly proclaim exactly what they think of their husbands. For some ungodly women, I want you to know that it actually reaches the point where you can see a hostility toward the husband built up in her heart. Eventually, she's indifferent toward the man. Eventually, 
She maybe even is resentful of him. But she has this desire to get her own way. She has this desire to rule over him. She wants to be in control. I'm not going to ask what he thinks. I don't really care. I'm not going to ask his direction because I really don't care what he says. I'm going to do what I want. And if that's not the direction he wants to go, too bad. And sometimes that emotion and that feeling builds up in her heart. And I want you to know that it all began at the time of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. That's where it all started. That is God saying to Eve, your desire will be to control him, but he will rule over you. So it's nothing new. It began in Genesis chapter 3, and we still see it today. And you're going to see it until the Lord returns. In fact, I want you to know that during the first century, there was a very, very similar phenomenon that was still at work. And this is so interesting. Because it was during this time that all the various books of the Bible were written. And I want you to know that in that culture, just as it is today, it was, as it is in some places today, it was fitting for a woman to cover her head with a veil. And there are, certainly we know that in some cultures today that ladies still cover their heads. They, in some places, even still cover their faces as they go out into public. And so in that time, in that particular culture, it was fitting for a woman to cover her head with some sort of veil. But there were those women who felt that they had the need to protest. They felt that they had the need to speak out against it. And to do that, they began throwing off their veil. Now, as typically happens... When a spirit of protest begins, it eventually snowballs, doesn't it? As we protest, it begins to get bigger and louder and it begins to pick up momentum. And so then some women felt, not only do I need to throw off my veil, I need to go just a little bit farther. And so what happened was not only did the ladies throw off their veil, they began to cut off all their hair. And they would cut their hair down. And they would say, I don't need to cover my head. So not only will I not cover my head with a veil, I won't even cover it with my hair. And I'm going to cut my hair off. And eventually, it continued to gain momentum. And it continued to gain momentum. In some extreme cases, some even completely shaved their heads completely bald. And they were doing it in protest. And they were saying, anything a man can do, I can do better. And so they went even further than that. And some of them, in extreme cases, began to throw off their coverings. And they walked around bare-chested, carrying knives and spears and hunting and killing animals and doing all the same things that men did in protest, saying, you're no better than me. See, I can do all of the same things that you can do. And that was happening in the first century. And I want you to know that that is what Paul was addressing in the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about head coverings in service. What he's saying is that there are women in the church who were protesting the woman's role and her place in society, and they had joined the protest by removing their veil. And Paul said, look, if you are going to protest, if you are going to object to God's order for the family, you may as well just go all the way like everyone else. If you are going to shame yourselves by breaking God's order and by coming out and protesting your husband and his leadership over you, you may as well remove the veil. You may as well cut your hair. You may as well shave your heads. You may as well pick up a knife and run around hunting animals because you are not protesting your husband. You are protesting God's design. You might as well go all the way. That's what Paul was saying. If you're going to shame yourselves by breaking God's order, why stop? Why not just go all the way? You see, I want you to know that you're not protesting your husband. You are protesting God's design. That's what you're doing. And we still see it today, don't we? I mean, think about this. 
Women decide that they don't need the husband to have a functional family. And so they attempt to build families without the husband. Some women will marry other women. And they even start families through adoption or some form of insemination, reasoning to themselves that they don't need the husband. They don't need their traditional order. They can do it without God's original design. But I want you to know, as we discussed last week, it is God who is the designer. It is God who is the creator. God is the one who made the order. So the order that those women are protesting is not just the family order. In doing that, they are protesting the very order and the very design of God. Do you see? You see, God said that there is a certain order in the home. God said there is a certain way that things are to go. Listen, the husband is to submit to God. The wife is to submit to the husband. The children are to submit to both parents. And the dog is to submit to the children. Isn't that how it works? The worker is to submit to the boss. And Paul's instruction is that you don't throw off the design of God. That's not the idea. You are not to be throwing off God's design. You are not modernizing the family. You are destroying it. You are not making it more fitting to today's enlightened culture. What you're doing is you are usurping the authority of God and you are establishing your own order as more authoritative than God. Do you see? Ladies, are you doing well this morning? Okay. So I want you to know that what that means in marriage is that the woman is to line herself up in a willing submission and subordination to her husband because that is God's order and that's his design. That's the way he designed the family. So why do they do that? Because in God's sovereignty, that's the way he ordained it. Because in God's sovereignty, he has ordained that structure for the order of familial leadership. And just in case you didn't get it, God shows us by giving us a perfect model. I want you to take a look at verse 23. This is what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife, and here's the model, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So you see here that the model is the headship of Christ over the church. Do you see that? That's the model. And we're going, guys, I want you to know, we're going to drill down into that a little bit further the next time we're together. And the ladies are going to be enjoying this, but that's what we're going to do the next time we're together. But listen, in the same way that Christ is the head of the church and the same way that the church is subject to Christ, it is that same way that the wife should subject herself to her husband. Ultimately, the wife submits to her husband and subjects herself to him because he is the head, because that's the way God designed it. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul uses the metaphor of the physical body, doesn't he? He says the body of Christ. In the physical body, as the head gives direction, the rest of the body does what? It responds and it moves and it has its function as the head gives direction. In cases where the physical body is not responsive to the leading of the head, you know what you have? You have disability. When the physical body does not function according to the leading of the head, you have either disability or dysfunction. It's the same in the body of the family. When the head of the family does not effectively lead the body, when the family does not respond to the leading of the husband or the head of the family, what you have is a family that grows more and more disabled. You have a family that grows more and more dysfunctional. And for the body to function properly, the wife and the rest of the family must submit it itself and subordinate itself to the husband. Oh, Scott, but you don't know my husband. That guy is a real selfish jerk. Don't you say amen? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
That guy is a real jerk. He doesn't even serve the Lord. Ladies, that may be true. And if he doesn't serve the Lord, there's a good chance he's a selfish jerk. He probably is anyway. And so I want to take a minute, if I could, and I want to just address the young unmarried ladies who are here today, if you don't mind. Young ladies, you must never marry a man who is not a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You must never marry someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. We've said it many times, but listen, that man will not understand the model of being the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. Do you see? He will not understand the concept of leading the way that Christ leads the church. He will not understand the sacrificial love. He will not understand the sacrificial giving himself up for his wife. He will not understand how to do that for her. He will not understand the biblical model of provision and protection for his bride. He will not understand the care and the nurturing. And he is far more likely to be a selfish jerk. Ladies, marry a Christian man. Marry a Christian man, and that'll be a great start in dealing with that problem. It doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have the problem, because some Christian guys are selfish jerks too. But the truth of the matter is, you have a far better chance of getting ahead of that if you'll marry someone who's a Christian man. Unfortunately, it is true that even men who name the name of Christ don't always understand this model of Christ being the head of the church very well. Husbands, I want you to know, it is important for you to understand that she is submissive to you and that she is subject to your leadership in the home. She is not an object for you to dominate. She is not an object for you to control. She is not an object for you to order around. You are to love her. You are to sacrifice for her in the same way that Christ loved and sacrificed for the church. And we're going to develop that next week. I'm not going to go too far with that this time. But you are not superior to her. She was created from the man's side as an equal help for the man not to be taken advantage of and to be trampled upon. That's not her purpose. That's not her role. But Scott, what if I have an ungodly husband? And I think that's a real problem. I think that's something that many people face. Should a believing wife submit to and make her subject to a man who does not obey the Word of God? It's a great question. And I want you to know that it's one of the issues that Peter addressed when he wrote his first epistle. And you can just follow along with me in chapter 3 and and verses 1 and 2. He says this, Likewise, same instruction as Paul's, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Did you see that? So Peter is speaking about believing women who have husbands who are either unbelieving or disobedient to the Word of God. And he says, more than anyone else, you have a greater reason to submit to your husbands. Do you see? If the Christian wife has a reason to submit to her husband, the one who has an unbelieving husband has an even greater reason to submit to him. Because when you line up under him and you subject yourselves to his leadership, the witness of your respectful conduct, the witness of your virtue will be an even greater testimony to him than the many words that you've been banging him over the head with for the last years trying to convert him. 
that will be an even more compelling witness to him than the many words that you've used. And Peter goes on to say in verse 3 that the inner beauty, he says the inner beauty, ladies, and the quiet spirit is even more attractive to the man than the external beauty, the braided hair and the beautiful jewelry and all those things. It's the internal beauty of your sweet and soft spirit that is even more attractive to him than anything else. Men, you should have said it very loudly right there. Amen. Amen. It's true. Yeah, it's too late. <laughs> if, if I had to tell you, you're, you're getting it when you get home. <laughs> oh, boy. So you can imagine the situation here. I want you to think about this. You can imagine the situation here because I think many of you, if you're not there now, you have probably been there at some point in your lives. I think you felt this way in the past maybe. Maybe you have a husband who is either not saved or is living in disobedience to the Word of God. And he's not fulfilling all the dreams that you had. Your marriage isn't what you thought it was going to be. As a young girl, you thought about what it would be like to be married. And he's not fulfilling the dreams that you had of marriage as a young girl. He's probably not the best husband in the world. Maybe before you got married, you expected something totally different than what you're getting now. And now you're so badly disappointed that you feel like you can't even stand to live with the guy anymore. Maybe it feels like he never really listens to you. Maybe he doesn't really seem to care how you feel. And maybe you're really starting to get fed up with that. Maybe he's coarse. Maybe he's, he tries to be authoritative and you can't stand it. You can't stand the way he talks to you. Maybe he talks down to you or maybe he acts like he doesn't value your input. Maybe he doesn't value your wisdom or the things that you have to say. And Peter says, ladies, all the more reason to be submissive. All the more reason to demonstrate the pure and gentle inner beauty. All the more reason to be kind. All the more reason to be respectful and submissive as a wife that you may have the hope of winning him without using your words but by using your actions. You don't have to pretend that you have no personality. You don't have to pretend that you have no passion. You don't have to pretend that you have no opinion. You just need to have a genuine sweet and a kindness in your heart that is attractive to him. You just need to have a pure and respectful conduct toward him, whether you agree with him all the time or not. What man would not want a woman like that? What man would not want to honor a woman like that? He'll be surprised and he'll be won over by your respectful and humble conduct. And I want you to know that it doesn't mean that you compromise your godly standards to subject yourself to an ungodly man. You don't compromise your godly standards, but you do it in a way that is fitting for someone of your privileged position in Christ. You never, ladies, you never, ever submit to your husband in conduct which causes you to be disobedient to Scripture or to dishonor God. You never do that. But there's something very important that I need you to see here. I want you to take a look at verse 22 again. This is what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, to whom are you to submit yourselves? Look again. To your own husbands. Do you see this? You are to submit yourselves to your own husbands. And this is very, very important. I want you to get this. This is the word idios. And it means one's own personal or unique. And some of you ladies who have heard me talk about the Greek in the past, you say, wait a minute, I know that's where we get the word idiot. And I know what you're saying is I have to submit myself to my idiot husband. But that's not what, I'm, that's not what that means in this particular context. <laughs> Although it is true. 
<laughs> so listen, what it means is you are to submit to your own personal husband, the one who is uniquely yours. You submit to and you line yourself up under the one who is uniquely yours. You line yourself up under the one who is uniquely yours, your personal husband. Why is that important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it shows possession. Do you see this? To whom does the husband belong? He belongs to you. He is yours. You possess him. He belongs to you. He is yours and he is yours alone. He does not belong to another woman. He does not belong to another person. He belongs to just you. He is uniquely yours. Yet, while he is yours, you are still submissive to him. He is uniquely yours, but you submit to him. And secondly, it means that we can't just take this broad brush and paint very broadly that every woman is to submit to every man. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that man is better than woman. It does not mean that every man rules every woman. Man is not better than woman. She is to submit only to the man who is uniquely hers. Do you see? She is in every way equal to him just because the husband-wife relationship has an order and a submission. It does not say and it is not to indicate that she is not on level ground with him. Do you see? He belongs to her and she belongs to him. There is this beautiful interdependence. There is no distinction, ladies, to be drawn between the intelligence or the mental capacity of the husband and the wife. It doesn't mean that he's smarter than you. There's no no distinction to be drawn in the areas of social and spiritual capability. There's no distinction to be drawn in levels of wisdom. The distinction is drawn only in the role. Do you see? It is only in the role, in fact, as we noted earlier, in the body of Christ, there is neither male nor female, is there? There's neither male nor female in the body of Christ. It's just that the marriage relationship declares that the husband and the wife have different roles. That's it. That's all that it means. It's just like the roles in the body of Christ. Do you know that? The one who serves is no more important the one who served is, is no more privileged than the one who teaches. The one who encourages is no less important or valuable than the one who gives. They just have different roles and we need them all. God has to have certain people in certain places to make sure that the body functions as he has designed it. He wants it to function the way that it should. And so that's why in the church to some he gave apostles and then he gave prophets and he gave teachers and he gave pastors and he gave those who have all of these different combinations of spiritual giftings so that the church could function the way that it should. And it's the exact same way in the family. No one is better than anyone else. It just means that you have different roles. No one member is any more important than the other. They just have different roles. Some are husbands. Some are wives. And once again, ladies, you are submissive to your own unique husband. You are never to subject yourselves to other men in the same way that you subject yourselves to your husband. You are never to do that. He is uniquely yours. 
He is uniquely yours. Your relationship to other men must not be that same kind of relationship. You must never submit to them that way. Those relationships are simply relationships as with others in the body of Christ where there is neither Jew nor Greek, where there is neither slave nor free, where there is neither male nor female. You see, you are co-heirs with those other men. You are co-heirs with them, and you mutually share and receive gifts that are administered to the body as God enables. And as he does that, you grow with them in faith and in the word of God. You should never, ever, ladies, give yourselves over to control of another, either emotionally or physically, but only to the man who is uniquely yours. That's it. So as we wrap it up this morning, I want to take you to verse 24. And I want you to see something very important. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives must submit in everything to their husbands. So just in case... Some of you had the thought, well, this only pertains to spiritual matters. Just in case some of you had the thought that I'll submit to my husband in things that pertain to the spirituality of our household, but when it comes to other things, when it comes to the other things in the family, I am the authority and I'm the boss. And I just want you to know, Paul anticipated that you were going to say that. He knew (laughs) what you were going to say, and he knew there would be people who felt that way. So what he says in verse 24 is, no, you submit to him in what? In everything, do you see? You submit to him in everything. Listen, as strange as it seems, there are even churches in the world today that try to do this very thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? I should think about it for a minute. As strange as it seems, there are churches today who try to tell Christ, your word is authoritative when it comes to things that pertain to love and forgiveness. But when it comes to this or that, Scripture isn't authoritative anymore. Do you see? Hmm. How foolish is that? The church is subject to Christ in how much? In everything. The church is subject to Christ in everything. We don't just get to pick and choose which areas we will submit ourselves to Christ. We can't say, I gladly embrace the doctrine of God's love for me, and I gladly embrace the doctrine of forgiveness, but when it comes to my sexuality, Christ has no authority. When it comes to my promiscuity, Christ has nothing to say to me. We can't just say, I'll take this doctrine, but I reject that one. It doesn't work that way. We can't say that Christ has no authority on this. We can't say, I receive the teaching on love, but when it comes to the doctrine of judgment and hell, I reject that. See, if that's the case, you're really not submissive to Christ at all, are you? You're really not. If that's the case, you're not submissive to him at all, and you may as well just remove your veil and shave your heads, because what you're doing is you're protesting the authority of Christ over the church. You either submit to Christ and his word in all things, or you are not really submissive to him at all. And Paul tells us that same principle is true in the family. If you determine that you will submit to your husband in this particular area or in that particular area, but when it comes to something else, you are saying, but but not when it comes to something else, what you're doing is that you are saying that you are not really submissive at all because it is you who is the authority who determines what are and what are not the acceptable standards in the family model. Do you see? Does that make sense? You are saying that I will determine where it's appropriate for me to submit and where it is not. So what that means is that you actually are in charge, doesn't it? And what it means is that you are actually controlling. And so you're not submissive at all. That's what Paul is saying. You're saying as the authority 
I am determining that it is acceptable for the wife to submit here and here, but it's not acceptable for her to submit there. And to do that, I want you to know, is to deny the headship of the husband completely. You either submit to him in all things, or you're really not submissive at all. The godly wife, the good wife, is one who is respectful, and she's pure in conduct, and she's submissive in all things. An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he'll have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Her children rise up and they call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her saying, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Husbands, if you've got one like that, you need to understand the heaviness of the responsibility that you carry with you. And I'm going to share that with you the next time that we're together. Father, I thank you for the grace of life of a godly wife. I thank you that you've given me a godly woman who serves and honors you, serves and honors her family. And Lord, I just pray that as the instruction today may be difficult to hear, that you would help us in our spirits to be humbled by the filling of your Holy Spirit, that we would be broken and contrite, that we could be empowered to subject ourselves even to husbands who are not godly and who are not kind. Lord, that they may be won over and that their hearts may be changed that they may be born into a new life where they're filled with the Spirit and they are filled with kindness and love and compassion. Lord, I just pray for every husband and wife relationship here this morning that you would strengthen that relationship. I pray that you would build them that you would make them lovers not only of, of you, but of one another, submissive to each other in all things. I pray that you would teach them to give the very best to one another, that they might bring glory and honor to your kingdom and to your name. I pray, God, that you would help them to raise up godly children who fear and honor you and reverence you and exalt your name. I thank you, God, for all that you have done for us and for your kindness and your mercy and pray blessing on all those who are married. And Lord, for those who are, who are yet unmarried, I pray that you would provide the right relationship for them, the godly relationships that, that, uh, that are built on the sound foundation and the sound structure of the Word of God, that they may find satisfaction in serving you together. I pray that you would bless them with that grace, we pray now in Jesus' name.